get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Everyone and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And when last we left you, there were two companies that were rising in prominence in various forms of instrumentation. But had, as of yet, absolutely nothing to do with one another. Yes, they were kind of like those that those awkward boys and girls at the high school dance, standing as far apart from each other in the dance floor as they possibly could be. They were science ships passing in the night. Yes, so we had Perkin Elmer, known for creating scientific instrumentation with lots of syllables that make me fall over myself. And then we have EG&G, a group of MIT brainiacs who were really focused on high-speed photography and other instrumentation. So... When last we left off, we were just coming up on 1964 when EG&G really gets involved in the space race. That's right. Um, they they produced the light beacons that were launched into space on board the Gemini spacecraft. Or the Gemini spacecraft, if you're one of those folks from NASA who insisted on pronouncing it that way. I've never heard that. That's amazing. You have to watch the old videos. I, I say Gemini. I refuse to say Gemini, other than the fact that if you watch those old videos, it's... Gemini. Like, you mean like the cricket? Uh <laughs> Yeah, so that same year, EGNG also conducts seismic mapping operations in the English Channel as part of a project to create an underwater tunnel connecting England to France. This is 1964. We wouldn't actually see that underwater tunnel for many, many, many years. Decades, in fact. But it's really exciting to me that I, I had no idea that it dated back that far. So that's really cool. In 1965, EG&G lists as a public company on the stock exchange. Uh, they had actually already begun offering stock options, common stock options, over the counter back in 1960 for $14.50 a share. Over the counter stock options. I didn't even know. Yeah, it's because they, they, they were technically public, but they weren't publicly listed on a stock exchange. Oh, okay. So it was mm-hmm. kind of an interesting ex- uh, example there. In 1966, they created EG&G International Incorporated, which was a subsidiary of the overall company. And this was specifically to encompass all their oceanographic products and services. We talked in the last episode about how they had uh, created underwater cameras and light sources. Mm -hmm, And and, uh, worked with Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, that was really pretty cool. And that same year, the Atomic Energy Commission, the AEC, uh, sponsored a construction of a technical services building in Nevada specifically for EG&G use. Wow. Uh, this division, sometimes known as Albuquerque Operations, would eventually encompass all kinds of military-focused projects, including like landmine detection and ground air communications, EMP simulation, uh, and a lot of equipment shielding projects for rugged environments. Yeah. I think EMP simulations mean that you need some good shielding there. It's pretty interesting stuff that, 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 you know, think about it. This started as a company that was all about high-speed photography, and now they're looking into EMP simulations for the military. In fact, their relationship with the government, EG&G's relationship with the government, would mean that uh, it would get pretty complicated. You had entire divisions of the company that were working in a more commercial aspect and a large portion of the company that was working almost exclusively under government contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gets pretty complex later on, too. 1967, EG&G goes on an acquisition rampage. It's like if you've ever seen one of those old uh, game shows where you got to go on a shopping spree at the end of it and just run down the aisles and just shove stuff into shove your shopping cart. Shove all the diapers cart. into your cart. Yeah, yeah. that's uh-huh. kind of how I feel EG&G went at this point. Uh, yeah, because things weren't quite complicated enough. They needed to add a whole bunch of different corporations. Yeah, there were so many that we even... 
we started to list them and then realized that this is just a list of names that aren't going to mean much to anyone who hasn't worked for one of those companies. Sure. Because most of them are not companies that, that most of us know just easily by name. Mm-hmm. And we ended up cutting them all out because yeah, I, I mean, too many. F- furthermore, I mean, this was 1967 and this would continue going on for the next several years. Yep. So. So 1968, EG&G successfully tests the Phoebus 2A, which was a nuclear reactor for space propulsion. That's pretty cool. Uh, and in 1969, they contribute several electronic components to the Apollo program, which was also pronounced Apollo. So they didn't do anything fun with that one. It was not the Gemini, Gemini thing. That's good. <laughs> they contributed to the first successful use of nuclear explosives to recover deeply buried natural gas. Uh, that's cool. Also, in that year, Apollo 11 uh, landed on the moon, and Neil Armstrong's helmet would boast a transparent gold protective coating that was designed by Perkin Elmer. So now we're seeing EG&G and Perkin Elmer kind of, sort of, working together, but not knowingly doing so. They're all working specifically for NASA. Right. But, uh, but you know, just 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 hints of things to come. <laughs> Uh, 1973, EG&G supports Antarctic scientific research and also contributes instrumentation to the Pioneer 10 space probe. Also that year, Perkin Elmer would acquire a company called Interdata, which was an early computer company, and thus begin getting into digitized components and controllers, which would overall make their equipment easier for people to use with minimal training. Yep. And in 1976, EG&G acquires Reticon, which was a solid state imaging and integrated circuit production company. Uh, so, you know, you can see where EG&G is starting to look into the the components that make up today's digital cameras, including charge coupled devices, CCDs. That's a sensor that's found in many, uh, though not all, digital cameras. And uh, yeah, there was... Um, there's an interesting note here about some more space stuff, right? Yeah, that year, Perkin Elmer, one of their mass spectrometers went interplanetary. It was one of the instruments that went to Mars with the uh, with the Viking lander. That's so freaking awesome. <laughs> 1977. Okay, here's the big one, guys. This is going to take up a large part of our episode because this is the uh, the the big blunder, really that that comes in here. This is when Perkin Elmer wins a contract to work on components for the Hubble Space Telescope way back in 1977. If you happen to know your history of the Hubble Space Telescope, it might surprise you to know that it all begins back in the late 70s. Uh, Because it wouldn't launch until 1990. Yeah, so now Perkin Elmer's focus, ha ha ha, was on the optical telescope assembly. There's a note in here that the pun is not intended, and I think you're lying. It's totally intended now. It wasn't intended when I was writing it. (laughs) But then I was like, I'm totally intending it. Intention has changed. But yes, their their focus was on the optical telescope assembly and the fine guidance system. These are two separate systems that they were working on. And so here's the highlights of what the Hubble Space Telescope was all about and what the problem was. So the purpose of the Hubble Space Telescope was to take astronomical measurements and observations outside of the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, right, because there's a lot of, of, of stuff, including air and clouds and moisture and all sorts of other other just things that get in the way of your instruments when you're trying to look at really distant stars. And it's also all that stuff can act as a filter and block certain types of radiation that you might want to be able to study. Things right. like X-rays and gamma rays. Now, we're glad that our atmosphere does this. Yes. Because life would not really be possible if we didn't have that protective layer. Right. It's excellent. But it does mean that making observations from the ground is very tricky. So what do you do? Well, why not put a telescope outside the atmosphere in Earth orbit? That's exactly the reason 
that NASA decided to, to uh, pursue the, this idea, the Hubble Space Telescope. So here's how it works in general. It uses mirrors to direct light to one or more of several scientific instruments that are contained within the telescope. And then those instruments analyze the light that comes in. So those mirrors are incredibly important, right? They have to have a very specific way of focusing that light so it hits the sensors just right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the mirror shape and the um, uh, electronics that are used to guide them are very critical. Yeah, because if it's not focusing the light, then you're not getting really good images. Mm-hmm. So Perkin Elmer worked on the mirrors for the optical telescope assembly, and they had to build the structure for it and the supporting systems, then assemble all of them and to test it before it was sent into space. It's the testing part that met with some uh, criticisms, I would say. So the telescope's launch met with several delays. Uh, right. The original date was uh, October 1986 for yeah. launch, but that did not happen. No. In January of 1986, for those of us who are old enough to remember, uh, we had the horrible tragedy of the Challenger disaster. And that set back the entire space industry by several months. Uh, uh, right, right. All of NASA basically bent itself to figuring out why this tragedy had happened and how it can be prevented in the future. Exactly. So uh, then uh, it gets pushed back over and over again. And it wouldn't actually launch until April 24th, 1990. And once it was in orbit, it immediately started taking pictures. Uh, whereupon everyone realized that something was not right. Yeah, they weren't as crisp as they needed to be. They weren't. There was this notion that the images they would get back from the Hubble were going to be the certain level of clarity and, and crispness. And they were not nearly crisp enough. I mean, they weren't awful, but they were blurry. And there was some confusion at first as to why that was. And eventually they determined that the problem was Hubble's primary mirror, which had been polished over the course of an entire year. This is how big and delicate the thing is. Mm-hmm. It had something called a spherical aberration. Uh, it means that that the curve on it was was very slightly off. Yeah, like we're talking about the thickness, uh, the similarity of a thickness of one fiftieth of a sheet of paper. Oof. So if you look at that and you were to take a sheet of paper, divide it fifty times equally, one of those would be the difference in curvature that it was versus what it was supposed to be. But but even that small difference meant that the the light bouncing off of it was being focused on a very slightly different point than it was supposed to be. Right. So that meant that uh, the the center, the light that was hitting the center was hitting one part of the sensor and the light that was hitting the edges of the mirror was hitting a slightly different focal point. So no matter what, however you you uh, align the mirror, you were never going to get the perfect image because the center and the edges were out of alignment mm-hmm. of the mirror itself. And so how do you fix this? Well, they decided to use what they called the Corrective Optics Space Telescope Axial Replacement, which I'm sure they named it just so they could get the acronym COSTAR. So COSTAR was a series of 10 smaller mirrors that intercepted the reflected light from the primary mirror and then corrected it for that spherical aberration. So they had to go up there and then do some very delicate surgery on the Hubble Space Telescope in orbit. Uh, right. This all took place in, in December of 1993. Um, the, the, the installation required 11 months of training and five days of spacewalks once they actually got up there. Yeah. So we're, we're talking about it because, you know, you're in those giant spacesuits, right? You have very little mobility. You, you don't have a lot of flexibility. It's it's tough. There's to a limited do. period of time that you can be out there. Yeah, yeah. It's an incredibly high risk kind of operation, and also just one that's just monumentally difficult. 
but they were able to do it. They were able to make this replacement. Now, it didn't come cheaply. The estimated costs were somewhere in the round of uh, $86 million. Yeah. It's a big mistake to have to fix. And then subsequent visits to the Hubble involved replacing some of the old instrumentation on there with new versions of it that could, by themselves, account for that spherical aberration, meaning that CoStar eventually became obsolete because the instruments could correct for the error all on their own. They didn't need that extra set of mirrors. So that's kind of cool. And in 1999, another Perkin-Elmer system would re- need a, a replacement. Uh, you, me- I remember that I mentioned that they had the fine guidance system. That was the second part of the uh, systems they worked on. Uh-huh. So fine guidance system was all uh, about letting the Hubble remain very stable while taking measurements and to very finely tune the telescope's direction so that you're pointing at exactly what you want to point at. Uh, they had to replace one of the three sensors, which not a huge deal because that is, uh, you know, it's wear and tear. Like eventually well, you sure, have that's, to. Sure, that's common, right? Yeah. So, the, and it wasn't like that was a faulty system, but this gave Perkin Elmer a pretty black eye, at least in the space industry for a little while, uh, and became kind of the stuff of legend in, in the NASA chronicles. And it was a mistake that no one knew about until after the Hubble Space Telescope was in orbit, which was decades after Perkin Elmer had gotten the contract. Uh, sure. But, you know, anytime that you've got a near billion dollar mistake, that's a government contract. That's not yeah, that's not looking great. It's pretty rough. So we've got a lot more to say here, but uh, and things do turn up. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. It's we don't have it's not a sad ending, folks. We're going to have a happy ending, we promise. But we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so we're back. And uh, now that we've got the Hubble hubbub out of the way, uh, we're going to go back to 1978. So we took a little bit of a diversion in order to cover all of Hubble. I thought it would have been too confusing to actually intersperse Hubble with the rest of this. It would have made a big mess. No, no. But 1978, EG&G, remember them? That's the other company we had been talking about. They joined the Department of Energy in Morgantown, West Virginia, in order to look at fossil fuel and alternative energy research. And that following year, so 1979, EG&G would establish a new company called EG&G Hydro Incorporated to establish hydroelectric power sources in the northeastern United States. Uh, meanwhile, back in 1978, while we're time hopping around, um, some EG&G monitoring equipment was used aboard aircraft measuring the radiation levels at Three Mile Island. Yeah. So that was the nuclear power facility in the United States that accidentally released a radioactive coolant in the form of steam. And so they needed to have ways of measuring the radiation without putting people in harm's way. Uh, it's interesting to me, again, just to see how far from the origin of EG&G's, uh, you know, purpose we've come from high-speed photography. To Three Mile Island. And, and yeah. fossil fuels and alternative yeah. energy. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. 1980, they also do something else uh, with extreme photography. We're talking about setting up cameras around Mount St. Helens, which erupted that year. Uh, an enormous eruption that that was, uh, you know, read your history books for that, because it was I remember living through uh, the news reports on that. And it was always really dramatic. So they set up cameras to help the U.S. government kind of keep an eye on what was going on again, trying to do so without putting people in harm's way. Mm-hmm. 1982, uh, NASA awards EG&G a contract to provide base operation support at Kennedy Space Center, obviously a big contract there. And in 1985, an EG&G scientist actually got to join the space shuttle crew for a mission. It was mission 51B slash Space Lab 3 uh, in order to study 
crystal growth in microgravity. And I, I just wonder, like, how cool is it for you to say that you worked at a company where one of your coworkers got to go out into space to do work? I mean, that's that's pretty cool. We it, can't say that. No, we can't. Uh, I, one of our former coworkers went on a parabolic flight and got to have, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, simulated weightlessness. That's cool. That's about as close as I, I think we've gotten, but it's still pretty neat. So 1989, EG&G is awarded contracts to support the Department of Energy's superconducting super collider project in Texas. Um, which, uh, you know, super colliders are always awesome, even when, those projects don't ultimately finish. <laughs> it's, it's, it's still nifty. Uh, in 1990, some of their components would play an integral role in the Department of Defense's global positioning satellites. Yeah. So we're talking super high tech. And in 1993, it was a big, big year. So Perkin Elmer merged with a company called Applied Biosystems, which was founded by two Hewitt Packard employees. And that company designed and manufactured scientific instruments, the first one being a protein sequencer. Uh, in October of 1993, Perkin Elmer agreed, along with Hughes Aircraft, to pay a $25 million uh, fine to head off a government lawsuit regarding that Hubble mistake yeah, we talked about. Yeah, per- Perkin Elmer's specific share of that would be $15 million. Yeah, which uh, when you consider that the the price of the or the cost of the error was much higher than that, I guess. They were getting off relatively easy. Yeah, I, I, I have no doubt whatsoever that the people at Perkin Elmer were trying very hard to make a good product just based upon the company's history. But it also, I mean, they were under a lot of criticism saying that after all this time, when all that testing, I, you would think that that uh, aberration would have revealed itself. And some people alleged that there were at least folks at Perkin Elmer who were aware of the problem, but allowed it to go on anyway. Oof. Yeah. So hmm. whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that was certainly in the allegations. Also, EG&G got into the micro machining game in a partnership with the Institute of Microelectronics National University of Singapore. So building lots of teeny tiny machine parts at this point. And 1994 was another big year. Uh, so that year, Perkin Elmer reported revenues of more than $1 billion. So they're not doing too bad for themselves, yeah. despite all of this uh, hubbub. Yeah, that, hubbub. That, that $15 million uh, fine might not seem so... Uh, so monumental in comparison huh. to a one billion dollar revenue. I mean, you never want to fine, obviously. No, but no. Um, and and a lot of that was coming from that uh, from that life life sciences division that they had just recently um, Acquired, made an acquisition yeah. of. Yeah. yeah. So life sciences was becoming a, a really big part of Perkin Elmer's portfolio. I mean, before they were really in uh, chemistry in general and inorganic chemistry in particular and optics. Uh-huh. Yeah. So now we've we're seeing them branch out. Meanwhile, EG&G reorganizes into five operating segments uh, and then um, almost immediately discontinues one of those five. The, the uh, They had a Department of Energy Support Division. but they With all up, of that stuff that we've been talking about for the yeah, past couple of decades. Right. All the, the alternative energy stuff, mm-hmm. all that. But what happened was they had made a bid on a particular contract. It didn't work out. And the company ultimately decided that it made more sense to just fold the division than to continue trying to bid for these contracts. They still got government contracts in other ways. In many other divisions. But not right. in energy anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also something big happened just in world news. Uh, right. That was that that underwater tunnel between England and France. Yep. The channel. The channel. I once had the opportunity to go uh, 
on a trip underneath the channel and I, I didn't get a chance to take it. Oh. But this is really cool because, you know, EG&G was the company that did all that seismic mapping of the English Channel to try and study the uh, the possibility of having this underwater tunnel. So this is we're seeing it start to pay off decades later. Uh, and in 1995, EG&G won uh, government contracts to build advanced X-ray and explosives detection systems for locations ranging from the Manchester airport at the in the United Kingdom to federal courthouses throughout the United States. So, again, really wow. branching out. Yeah. Uh, 1999, the non-governmental division of EG&G purchases the analytical instruments division of Perkin Elmer for four hundred and fifty two million dollars. Yeah. So now they change the name. All right, this is why we've been talking about EG&G and Perkin Elmer for two episodes. You know, you've been waiting to find out. How are these two companies involved, apart from the fact that they occasionally worked on projects that came together in the form of the Apollo program? It's because here in 1999, part of EG&G buys part of Perkin Elmer. And the new company is called Perkin Elmer, except it doesn't have a dash in it. Yeah, we probably should have mentioned that Perkin Elmer previously had a dash between Perkin and Elmer. Yes. Imagine every single time that we have said the word Perkin Elmer previously in these two episodes that we were saying Perkin Elmer, but with a dash. Yeah. Now we're saying Perkin Elmer with no dash, uh, which obviously saved the company millions of dollars by eliminating that dash. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, they became Perkin Elmer. So what happened to the rest of, of the Perkin Elmer company? You know, only part of it was purchased by EG&G. Uh, right. The old company became PE Corporation, which was focused on that life sciences and biotechnology kind of stuff. Yeah. And also on uh, genomics. Right. So in 2000, PE Corporation changes its name to Aplera, which was a kind of a portmanteau of Applied and Solera which were parts of other companies they had acquired previously. Uh, yes. And if you happen to listen to Forward Thinking, you will know that Solera is a uh, genetics and genomics company that, in fact, has very little to do with celery, despite what it sounds like. Right. So we finally have this point now where we've got uh, we've got Perkin Elmer. Uh, there was a brief time where Perkin Elmer and P.E. Corporation made it really, really confusing. And plus, you had, you know, the, the governmental parts of EG&G that still exist as well. Uh, complicated issue. So from 2000 to 2014, we had even more crazy corporate shenanigans going on. Oh, yeah. A, a lot of a lot of purchases and acquisitions. Name and changes. Name changes. Uh, uh, the, the, the name specifically applied biosystems, biosystems uh, got tossed around and capitalized and recapitalized in several different iterations. Yeah, it, it was changed from applied biosystems to like PE biosystems and then a year later changed back to applied biosystems and then eventually uh, acquired by a totally different company. So, yeah, we this is why this is a really complicated topic. It's not just the technology, which all on its own is complex, but because we're talking about the really uh, muddy and sometimes political world of commerce and how a company is more than just a single unit. It's made up of all these other divisions and subsidiaries, and it gets really messy really quickly. In fact, there were elements of some of these companies that had uh, their own stock symbols. So you had divisions within one company that each were being publicly traded, but in different ways. So that's unusual, too. Or at least unusual to me. I mean, it may happen all the time, but it was one of those things where I was like, really? I think it's not entirely uncommon, but. Yeah. Well, you know, it shows how much I play the stock market. <laughs> uh, I, 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 that stuff is just opaque to me. Okay. But so what exactly is Perkin Elmer, no dash, 
up to today. Wow. So much stuff. Okay. So Perkin Elmer also owns lots of other little subsidiaries. Right. When I say little, I talk about multi-million dollar. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Smaller than Perkin Elmer, which is enormous. It's a $2.2 billion company. So Perkin Elmer is involved in things like stem cell research, uh, has a subsidiary called Viacord that does that kind of work. Also genomics and diagnostics through a company called Signature Genomics. Uh, also prenatal screening through Perkin Elmer Lab slash NTD. Yep. Viral and bacterial DNA slash RNA isolation. Chemical analysis. Uh, thermal analysis. This one's really cool. The thermal analysis, because imagine that you are a giant manufacturing company and you work with a lot of different chemicals. Uh, and you are trying to create a new product, but you're not entirely sure if your processes are going to work with the chemicals you want to use. Like, you aren't really sure if your factories are going to explode or not, that kind of thing. What thermal analysis does is run through the various processes at the same temperatures and conditions that you would have in your production facilities to see what happens. So if toxins are let out, if there's anything dangerous, if the ultimate uh, end product is not uh, serviceable for some reason. It's it's kind of a, a prototyping for chemical manufacturing. That's awesome. So it's kind of neat. Uh, they've also got their hands in energy conservation um, and, and like green energy solutions, right. stuff like that, and environmental monitoring and analysis, that yep. whole like pollution and, and toxin detection kind of stuff. Yep. Food science. Nutraceuticals. That's a word that they use. Nutraceuticals, you guys. This I, is the best word what? I have ever heard in my life. I hadn't seen that until it showed up in the notes. Nutraceuticals. Wow. Okay. I'm pretty sure they mean vitamins. But, okay. Um... Gotcha. 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 Yeah. <laughs> that, that makes sense. Nutraceuticals. Uh, they also are involved in creating forensic analytical lab equipment. Mm -hmm. So for uh, law enforcement agencies and that sort of thing. And uh, they, they do consumer product materials testing. So this is another way where they try and help companies determine that their products are indeed non-toxic. Very important. Let's say uh, you're making toys for young kids. Oh, sure. Yeah. Or, uh, or or cookware or carpeting yeah. or I mean, basically anything that we come into contact with has to go through this sort of testing um, and Huzzah for having fewer things around us that cause cancer. Right, exactly. So this is the kind of company that builds the stuff that allows other companies to finish their products. Uh, it's one of those that you, you know, if you've never heard Perkin Elmer before, it's, you know, it's, it's not a big surprise because it's not, it's not one of those that is. It's not usually direct to consumers in yeah. any kind of way unless you work with scientific lab equipment. Uh, you, in which case you may be really familiar with it. Right. Yeah, so this has really been an interesting topic for us to cover because I was not familiar with Perkin Elmer, apart from I knew of it because of the Hubble hubbub. Right. But that was all I had heard of. And I really wasn't familiar with a lot of the equipment because my, my experience in chemistry, uh, I remember doing titrations. And that's about as much as I remember. And that didn't involve <laughs> any uh, any complex equipment. Yeah, my, my chem experience is from like 10th grade in high school. Yeah, so, so it's it's been a while for each of us. And so it was kind of fun to go back and look at this stuff. It's, it, you know, material that I don't often look over. And it's fun to, to explore that. So if any of you guys have suggestions for other fun topics we can cover, you know, something that you've always wondered about, even if, uh, you know, maybe it's one of those things kind of like this, this subject where it involves lots of different types of tech. Let us know. We like the challenge. Uh, just give us a lot of heads up time. You know? <laughs> uh, so, like, hey, the anniversary is coming up next week of such and such company that's been around for 400 years. Nope. That might, yeah, we might not be able nope. to get that out in time. 
But <laughs> otherwise, let us know. Send us a message. Our email is textup at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter. Our handle at all three is HSW. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 